This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Three months ago to the day, Israel suffered one of its darkest days, if not the darkest day, in its 75-year history. We've all been overwhelmed by the scenes of October 7th, whether depicted visually or verbally, they cut deep. But in the time since, events have unfolded, and the proverbial excrement is hitting the fan. As the war drags on in Gaza, inch by inch, what seemed to be unanimous international support for Israel for about 3.5 seconds on October 7th has quickly shifted. America is attempting to force Israel's hands both in the strikes against Hamas in Gaza and in the provision of humanitarian aid. And then just last week, Israel allegedly took out one of the heads of Hamas, Saleh al-Aruri in Lebanon, in a surgical strike. The extreme precision of the assassination was assumed to be a wink and nod at Hezbollah, signaling, feel free to stay out of this one. Hezbollah apparently wasn't keen on letting it be, and Saturday they upped their usual rocket barrage towards Israel and supposedly managed to hit an extremely strategic facility on Mount Meron in northern Israel. The water is beginning to bubble. The only question is what happens when the pots boiled. To help us dissect these complex issues, we're joined today by Caroline Glick. Caroline, G- Caroline is not just any journalist. Her resume speaks volumes. A former advisor to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and a veteran of the IDF, where she served in the Judge Advocate General Division. Caroline brings a unique blend of military and political insight. Her work as a senior columnist for publications like Israel Ayom and the Jerusalem Post, along with her on-the-ground reporting during Operation Iraqi Freedom, she has established her as a formidable voice in Middle Eastern affairs. She also has her own brilliant podcast titled The Caroline Glick Show. Check it out. We are thrilled to be joined by Caroline Glick on the podcast today to talk about the war, Israel-America relations, and where it's all headed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Uh, is it okay if I make a couple of biographical notes? That, yes. Uh, I, I think we you, usually get some. We right. usually get okay, some. Okay, because uh, I think the Wikipedia that you used is not, not the most updated one, but uh, I was act- I actually am the senior contributing editor at JNS, Jewish mm. News Syndicate, where my show is broadcast also on my personal website, carolynglick.com. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I mean, I was in the Judge Advocate General's Court uh, for a while, and then I went and I was um, in the office of the uh, coordinator for government activities in Judea and Samaria and mm-hmm. Gaza, where I served as a coordinator for the talks with the PLO <laughs> at the height of the ASO uh, years. So that was, I guess, the main thing that they always put in my bio for mm-hmm. my military service. Although it's interesting because what I did in the Judge Advocate General's Court was I edited a book called Israel, the Intifada, and the Rule of Law which showed that everything that Israel did at the time in 1990, up to 1992 in Judea and Samaria was legal under international law and Israeli administrative law. And then like two minutes after it was published, the 
uh, Robin Paris government decided that they wanted to throw everything into the garbage can and embrace the PLO and decided we didn't need any rights anymore under international law and they let the terrorists come in here and do what they did. So it's all very interesting and ironic. <laughs> Wow. So I think either way, your your experience gives you kind of a unique perspective on what's going on today in Israel, um, especially since a lot of people put the uh, the kind of impetus or the 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 origins of this back way back when in the Oslo. Uh, yeah, nothing. Agreement. This would have happened if we hadn't gone down that. Uh, glide path to uh, national self-destruction in 1993. So maybe maybe we start, and I don't mean to like, you know, ask you to prophesize, but where do you see things headed? Uh, in, a, in, a, in a good direction, in a bad direction? What do you, what do you think this is all culminating towards? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fortune teller. Um, right now, um, I think we should look at it sort of like a slalom of a ski, downhill ski, where you go from side to side, so do well, do badly, do well, do badly. But um, I don't think that we have a choice other than to win this and win this big. It'll take a while. We're going to need probably to either figure out a way to get the general staff of the IDF to um, join with the public and recognize that this is a war for our national survival and start acting like they recognize that because that's not what's happening now or replace them um but uh you know i i think what we've been seeing is that there's an just almost an unbridgeable gap between our progressive elites in this country and the nation of israel and um and so we're just going to have to figure out a way uh, to get them to join us. And because uh, if they don't, then it's going to be getting much uglier than what we saw on October 7th. You're saying this in the wake of something we didn't mention, which is, uh, I think it was Thursday or Friday, the, uh, the Supreme Court um, uh, finally knocked down the overturning of the reasonability clause. That was or earlier, it was nominee. earlier last week. Yeah. It was earlier yeah. last week. Yeah. Um, Thursday they said that uh, Netanyahu is the effective hostage of the attorney general who mm. can decide that he's unfit for office based on you know whatever her navel tells her any particular morning of the week and make him leave. So that that's interesting. But, uh, yeah, we, we've been subjected to a lot. And so do you think that that is the, this this uh, ruling by the Supreme Court and the possibility of how would you call, how would you call the nivtsarut uh, ousting Netanyahu the ousting by claiming Netanyahu. that he's unfit. Yeah. So do you do you see this as uh, consequential or at least the stage we're in right now? Um, I think it's almost, yes, it's exceedingly uh, consequential. We just had a coup. We're no longer effectively a, a democracy any longer. We're a judistocracy, I guess you would call it. We're, we're run by self-selected justices from, from a formal perspective. But again, I think, uh, for me, there's something deeply surrealistic about the judgments and about a lot of the other things that we've been seeing, the chief of staff appointing uh, himself a, an investigatory committee of his friends to investigate his failure and then of his fellow generals on October 7th. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on that's pretty surreal, that's hard to get your head around. It's so absurd and so contemptuous. 
of uh, the people of Israel. But that that's why, as 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 angry as I should be, it's hard for me to get um, worked up about it. Um, and I'm I get worked up pretty easily by these <laughs> things. I must say, I sort of made a made a profession out of it. But um, because it just it's it's not going to happen. I mean, we're in a war for our survival, and they don't want to acknowledge it because they just don't want to because it requires them to do certain things. Give up on going abroad, also in the it, case of the army generals. It, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe they shouldn't go to France. I don't think Jews should be in France. You know, maybe maybe they shouldn't do a lot of things. But you know, they have. You know, my friend Gadi Taub says. You know, they're they sort of look at themselves as members of this transnational class of progressives and they feel more relationship to you know their fellow progressives in the united states or in europe than they do to their fellow israelis um in tel aviv or in jerusalem or wherever and and you look at them and and you say well you know you don't get it right because your fellow progressives went to sleep progressive on October 6th and they woke up October 7th to the news of what happened here and found out they were Jewish. When are you going to discover that? You know, and and so I I kind of look at them and I think who's them? Who's they it's again? It's the Supreme Court justices, it's the generals, it's the media who, you know, on channels on the three main channels other than Channel 14, like Channel 14 they're cheerleaders uh, for the war effort and channels 11, 12 and 13 are are just demoralizing the public saying, you know, we lost, uh, you know, or let's just free the hostages, whatever the price without realizing that, you know, there are 9 million Israelis who are being held hostage by the likes of Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran. So, you know, it, it's our elites. It's the people who are in charge of academia, like this, uh, was it a department head at uh, Tel Aviv University who said that, Professors aren't allowed to wear the like the dog tax bring bring them home because you know I don't know maybe it's that political would, right you know gosh you wouldn't want to talk about the fact that there are a hundred and what twenty nine hostages assumed alive being held in cages sixty meters underground in Auschwitz like conditions in in Gaza like that would be a downer. But what or, you're or, saying is that those they're uh, detached from the people of Israel. But that you're saying even more that they are detached from their base, quote unquote, right? Because their base supported them up until October right. 6th, which is, I don't know, 10 mandates, 15 mandates, maybe in a good day, 20 mandates. And you're saying that now the mandates have gone to the center from the left to, let's say the center, generalizing, of course. And, but all those elites stayed, stayed put, they basically. Don't seem to, they, they don't How seem How do you explain that though? Because they're used to being in charge based on, you know, where what where they stand on these issues. That's the source of their power is their relationship with the Democrats, with uh, progressive Jewish leaders um, and donors, and you know, with a with the EU crowd, um, and that's where they always have been. So and, they're hopeless, in your opinion. Um, I don't know. I mean, what I do know is that they're they're undermining the war effort, and you know, you you look at the you look at the left. Can you give as, an example? Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the you look at uh, 
the head of intelligence who who said who is one of the architects of the most calamitous day in the history of the IDF, not to mention the state of Israel. I mean, they couldn't even defend their own bases, let alone, uh, you know, the communities around them. And uh, that was because he completely dismissed the importance of detailed intelligence reports that they had been receiving for, you know, years. And certainly they had a detailed intelligence report that came to him a year before in October 2022 that set out in 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 granular detail exactly what Hamas was planning and he dismissed it exactly what happened exactly what happened exactly yeah. I mean that was what was they reported on uh, on Uvda you know on the investigative show or whatever last week channel 2 and uh, and that was like that wasn't the first time we heard about it. It's just that they 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 said this, but they got a ha- they got their hands on the actual document. So we had heard about the existence of, you know, repeated reporting, not only by the women who were watching all the preparations on the screens along the border, but also from the intelligence uh, in the Gaza division, and that it was all just disregarded by Khalifa. So. His first, so his first speech after he did this, after he refused to resign also, like, I don't know about you guys, but like, if I did that, like, the first thing I would do would be resign. Like, don't trust me, I'm a total loser. You know, I, I have absolutely no wisdom. Like, you cannot trust my judgment, right? Don't trust my judgment. Look what happened when you trusted my judgment. I'm, me, Carolyn Glick-Suisa, I'm out of here tomorrow. You know, like, I, today, I'm not staying here. I would have said the same thing if I were Yolon uh, uh, Finkelman, the head of Southern Command. I would have quit. Like I would be too embarrassed to ever to ever show up for work after that. I mean, I don't understand these people. Like it would never occur to me to remain. I'm mean, just putting myself in their shoes. I would never do it. I couldn't. And yet, so his first public statement after this was, oh, this isn't a war for Israel's survival, you know, contradicting the prime minister and the government that it said it was. Mm -hmm. And then last week, he gave this speech to, again, like to the uh, cadets who were graduating from intelligence corps and uh, from their officer corps. And And he gave the list of the goals of the war to cause massive damage to Hamas. That's not the goal of the war that the that the government approved. The government's goal in this war, and you're, by the way, just so you know, like you're subordinate to the government by law, um, their goal is to eradicate Hamas, not to cause it major damage, to eradicate Hamas, both politically and militarily. Maybe what they say and what they... But he's not, it's not his job. I mean, he can tell that to the cabinet and see what they do. Maybe it's but, the order that was given to the army no, in no, practice. No. We no. don't know what's the actual... No, we know, we know what the government said the goal of this war is. We exactly. Know we know what pre- they said to us. No, we don't know what we, they tell the commanders. Well, the, I mean, we have to assume at a certain point, right, that they told the army what they told us. And let me tell you something else. Pretend for a second that they told the army something else, which I don't believe. But that's not what he said, right? It's not up to him. Yeah. To make to tell us what the goal is, his job is to win the war based on the goals set for him by the government, 
and is known to the public, which is to eradicate Hamas. And here comes Mr. Khalifa, the biggest loser general in the general staff in IDF history. I mean, he makes Eli Zaira, who was the head of military intelligence in 1973, look like a genius, you know, for not predicting the Egyptian invasion, right? I mean, just like the smartest guy ever. And so here is this big loser, and he comes up, for a second time, contradicts the government, not on the nature of the war, is this an existential struggle or not, which, by the way, has substantive implications, because if it's not, then fight to a draw. You know, who cares, right? Yeah. And But the other thing is, and he says, oh, our, our job isn't to do what the government said. It's to do what we say. And then you look at that and you say, well, that kind of undermines the war effort because that thing gets translated to commands on, for the soldiers on the ground, including our son, including everybody's sons. Like, I don't know anybody my age who doesn't have uh, a son or a nephew. And what are they fighting for is the right. question. Yeah. What are you doing? And, you know, are they going to have to go back? But you know, are our that? younger sons going to have to do this in four years again after we suffer another October 7th? But Khalifa has a commander. Yeah. Right. And so, he's a terrible one. He should not be there. He's not worthy of his soldiers. He's not worthy of the people of Israel. He's not worthy of his officers. He should not be there. I mean, I don't know what a guy has to do to prove that he's incompetent. You know, really, I mean, what does he have to do? Disregard a half dozen explicit, detailed warnings that Hamas is going to do exactly what they did, you know, and then have them do it? Kill 1,200 Israelis in a single day, take 240 hostages to Gaza, and you don't quit? Like, so what is that clear in this quit. picture? Yes. And even if it says that the army would go in war with new commanders, with new, like, you know, it's a bit, you need to oil all the, I don't know, like all gears. The, the, the gears, yeah, and the system. And it, you have people that aren't uh, experienced. Or Thank God, been look in, at uh, their experience. Their experience is an experience of failure. And what would you say? And incompetence. Like a lefty or even a central, even some right-wingers who would listen to you right now would say, but wait, but she doesn't say anything. What about the government? What about yeah, the, the right buck's got to stop somewhere. Yeah, well, first of all, I think you have to put the blame where it primarily lays because they didn't tell the government any of this. So it's like, did did Netanyahu exercise good or bad judgment? Well, you know, can he be blamed or not? Well, what did he know? He didn't know about about the the reports. They were never trans. They were never the the the, the Levy didn't tell <coughs> Netanyahu. He didn't tell Defense Minister Garland. He didn't tell the division commander in Gaza that at four o'clock in the morning they had received a warning that Hamas was gathering its forces and moving them towards the fence. But something that can be said about about the government, and I wonder what you have to say about this because I've been thinking about it for a while, which is the fact that it. it Ultimately, if you are the leader of the country, uh, the buck has to stop somewhere. It is your responsibility in the sense that, you know, okay, maybe he didn't know, but if you have such a rotten chain of command below you, you are responsible for that. You're responsible you know, for, for not this. Not firing the chief of staff right? was imposed on him in, in oh, spite. Oh, I agree. I mean, I have so much criticism of Netanyahu, but there's one big thing. Let me tell you, I think 
that it's a disaster of epic proportions that didn't, he didn't fire Herzl Levy, that he didn't fire Gali Barav Miara, the attorney general, the, in the first two hours after he was sworn in as prime minister in, in December of 2022. I think that that basically paved the, co- the, the, the way for all of the suffering that we had to endure in the 10 months following uh, his, his, restore, his, his restoration to power and, and to the invasion. So, I mean, yes, he, he, that was terrible that he didn't fire them. But I, I, think, I think he regrets it probably now in retrospect. Well, I think he probably regretted it at the time that he hadn't fired them. But I think he felt that he didn't have the power to do so because of the sort of... Um, yeah, because of the left and the media, they because, would uh, eat him alive, obviously. And because, but his, and because his criminal case was ongoing and she's in charge of the prosecution. So I think, you know, there were a lot of things that went into his hesitancy. But yeah, he certainly has shown a lot of hesitancy in taking on things that really he really needed to take on. And look, when I was in the army and then later when I was working for him in the 90s, you know, I saw with my own eyes that the generals and the general staff, they were total leftists. They were, they were completely opposed to Netanyahu. You should have seen the day that he was elected in 96, <laughs> a colleague of mine, or two officers, were practically skipping down the hallways in the, in the defense ministry, we were so happy. And it was like a funeral. Everybody was sitting shiva because Paris had lost to Bibi. We went to sleep with Paris and woke up. We with did. Bibi. Like I went yeah. to bed at like two o'clock in the morning after thinking, you know, Al Naharot Bavel, you know, on the rivers of Babylon, where we said and like crying, you know. Yeah. And and then uh, a friend of mine called me up at. Uh, five o'clock in the morning or something he says carolyn carolyn turn on the radio turn on the radio baby one so i get to the office in the ministry of defense the next day and yeah we were so happy and everybody there was so upset and the minute that he came in the generals and the general staff from the chief of staff Amnon Shachak down they were all trying to oust him from power they were all working against him from the beginning and I get to the prime minister's office and they finally got rid of him it was Amnon Shachak together with Itzik Mordechai that ousted him from power in 99 so it's like he he had this You're saying the chief of the IDF How conspired so? well yeah. he well no I mean when Amnon Shachak was chief of staff he refused to even meet with the prime minister it was crazy and they were not telling him information about the Palestinian Authority and about what Israel's intentions were in the agreement with Hebron. I mean, they were lying to him about a lot of things. And, you know, and, and I was watching it happen. I was 25, you know, and I'm watching this happen. I'm going, holy smokes, you know, they're trying to oust him. It never occurred to me. In America, it wouldn't. I, it couldn't. It's a different yeah. chain of command in America. It's a different system of government. It's a presidential system. And, and, and just like leaking everything from the meetings they would get out my, you know, they would, the generals would get out of the meetings with Netanyahu, these top secret meetings. They get out their phones. You remember, they, I don't know if you're too young to the know, mo- but they had these big Motorola's with these huge, with these huge antennas and they would go out of his office and already be on their phone with Nahum Barnea or with, you know, whatever, all of these diplomatic reporters to leak whatever it was that they wanted to hear about Bibi and then you would, or Yossi Sarid, and then they would get up on TV like before the notes from the meeting were even written, attacking a decision that Netanyahu made in a top secret meeting. So, I mean, like you can't imagine how bad it was. And I saw it. I was like, I can't believe this. 
well, look where I am. I, mean, I got to, like I made Aliyah five minutes ago. You know, I got to the top of the top, and I find that I'm surrounded by these horrible people. It's a farce, who, basically. Well, yeah. it's a, it's a, ter- it was a terrible feeling. You know, I had thought that everybody who served in the army, you know, from the cook certainly to the chief of staff, they were all Yoni Netanyahu's. Like for me, I was just. I mean, maybe you were the same way growing up in America and coming and being a lone soldier. You know, you have this fairy tale idea of the IDF, certainly of the general staff. Then I get to the general staff, like two years after I make Aliyah, just like the weirdest thing, right? Like Forrest Gump, you know? <laughs> That's how I felt. I think the movie came on around that time. Like, yeah, I get that, you know? And, uh, and there I am watching this unfold, and then I get to Bibi's office later, and 99, I had already left. I was tired of this racket. I went in 98 to, to Harvard to get a, a master's in public oh, no. policy. Yeah, to the Kennedy School. I wasn't I a hope you didn't, uh, I didn't misquote anything. I didn't, <laughs> if, but if I had, I would have gotten in trouble, but no. I, I, I went there and I got a master's in public policy. So I was there when he, when he was when he was uh, defeated in 99. But, you know, I, I watched it all, and it was like this slow-motion car crash. So he, he came back into office 10 years later, and I think that his takeaway from that was don't try to take on the IDF. And then he saw he did, like, all these bypass operations to bypass the IDF. He went to the Mossad, and he waited until he could finally get a Mossad director that he could yeah. deal with. He went to the foreign ministry, tore that apart, you know, and built the Ministry of Strategic Affairs and the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs. So he's always trying to go around, but right. he never went to the heart of it. And so now... To the wasps. Uh, yeah, nests. to the, what, what, uh, what uh, Uri Segi, the former head of intelligence, who has already just said that Bibi's like the biggest threat. He's like the Ottoman Empire. I mean, it's insane how terrible these people are. So he told me that like the, the right and particularly the religious Zionists are... A deviation from the norm and that he was from the Mayflower, right? He's like the daughters of the American Revolution. You know, he's, he's the wasps. And so that's how they see themselves. They're the entitled ones. You know, you had Amir Haskell, this um, brigadier general from the Air Force, who was one of the Kaplan forces who's against Netanyahu before when they were on Balfour Street outside of the prime minister's house. And he was the one who told the, the, the police officer who was from Ethiopia, whose family, who's family came from Ethiopia, he said, how dare you try to arrest me? I brought your parents to Israel. Like he flew them. Like she owes him because he served in the military. He, are, yeah. he, are you mad? I mean, this sense of entitlement and privilege is so deep-seated in these people that they can't imagine the natives, you know, coming up, all of these unwashed Americans and religious people and, you know, black people and Sephardic people. Like, they, like we're not allowed to be in charge of anything because, like, it's theirs because their parents did this or they did that. And they only did it because their par- their, they were the children They gave of, the state. They made the state yeah, for us and for we us, just have yes. to obey them, you know. I have to ask you, though, um, back to the war because uh, you mentioned... Um, how Channel 14, and I know you appear there from time to time, they are uh, cheerleading cheerleading the war. Um, but isn't it two signs of, of, of the same coin in, in the sense that if we look at the war, and, and as you said, like those are the people who we rely upon, right, to win, essentially. K- 
can we win with such people at the helm, right? Can we even win? And and if it is indeed a problem, isn't it problematic that Channel 14, for example, you know, doesn't sh- doesn't critique enough, doesn't show the right picture, which is maybe we're not winning at all. Well, we're not. And you know, I mean, I don't know. I I I don't want to. Uh, bite the hand that feeds me, so to speak. But so the general, I, in general, but, the right I mean, wing media. I think that the problem is that you know there's a, a, an, an attempt to overcompensate, right? It's like to like if they're if they're at you know at at, um, at 90 degrees and you want to be at 270 degrees, like you want to be 180 degrees away from them, and um, that's not how you make a course correction, is it? I mean, you make a course correction by just pointing out what the problem is and talk about how to how to achieve a different result, you know, and what is the problem. And, how, and so there's some of that, especially now there's more reconsideration because of the way particularly the Americans are treating us. So there's reconsideration of that. And then like Herzia Levy's decision to investigate himself with his best friends, you know, like looking into what the IDF did and that's soiling a future investigation by destroying evidence or whatever, or reinterpreting events to suit the narrative that they want to put out. So that's very bad. And so that that's put him more under an, a microscope because they, they've gotten so out of, out of joint, you know, they've just gone far beyond what would be acceptable. So I think you know, I think that there there is more of a willingness to look at that. But you know, look, we're 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 losing in the north in a fundamental and fundamentally precarious way, um, and in the south, in Gaza, you know, we're we're not setting strategic benchmarks like how do you know when we've achieved victory, so that then you don't have to say have we reached these benchmarks or not, and that's not how you win a war. You have to have benchmarks. What what is it? So to the extent that there are measuring rods, they're irrelevant. Like they say, well, we, we beat, we, we, we killed the battalion commander or company commanders in Khan Yunus or in you know, Sajayi or whatever. But that's like irrelevant because Hamas isn't a hierarchical, hierarchical military organization. And you know, it's very easy to replace them. And the way that they operate is much more amorphous than the way that a normal military does. So if you're trying to draw parallels between Hamas and the IDF, you've already lost focus on what the nature, if you ever had it, about the nature of the enemy. You haven't, you haven't uh, characterized it a- accurately. And if you haven't accurately characterized your enemy, and you're not likely to win it. You have to understand him. And there seems to be precious lack of willingness on the part of the war planners to do that. So that's also very discouraging and 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 frightening. And 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 again, the reason why I go back to Oslo, and in a way, it was it was a waste of time. But but I think that the point that I was trying to make is that um, the dysfunction of the general staff is longstanding. Their lack of curiosity about the nature of the enemy, their um, their focus on domestic politics and power. Um, are all corrosive and corrupting. And um, you have a prime minister in Netanyahu who's been uh, contending with his state of affairs and not fixing it, and instead trying to go around it. And with some success. I mean, the Abraham Accords was a strategic success. 
um, Israel's economic uh, prosperity is a strategic success, success and a force multiplier. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of other things were also happening because of the pathologies of our ruling class. Like, for instance, the um, transformation of Israel from a sovereign, indep uh, strategically independent country into a country that's strategically dependent on the United States for no reason. Like, we didn't have to do that. But we, we made ourselves completely dependent on American armaments and and were willing to cut down and really starve out our domestic production lines, undermining our, our strategic independence over decades. And that's debilitating as we see today. And also... Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Is that like... What? Let me just say, and, and the last thing is the strategic concept that, you know, the that our military problems are actually political problems and that you know the 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 threat that we that we face from the north or from the palestinians whether in judea and samaria or in or in gaza are actually problems that have to be solved diplomatically which is a total lie and they're military problems and threats that have to be solved first and foremost militarily so those two doctrines have been debilitating and now what mm -hmm. were you saying about well, what i want to about specifically about our reliance on american mm -hmm. armaments which um, I, I'm wondering, like, do we, to what extent do we know how dependent we are on the Americans and how debilitating is that? I mean, do we not have the capacity to fight this war to, to the full extent on our own? No, we don't. We don't. I mean, we, we particularly since I mean, Obama really, uh, uh, Barack Obama really did something very insidious to us in, in 2016. And I wrote about it at the time in the Jerusalem Post. And I said, we mustn't under any circumstance accept the new deal that he wants for uh, military assistance. Because what he did was he increased military assistance, which we shouldn't have anyway, because we're a wealthy country. You know, we have over $50,000 a year in uh, per capita GDP, which is one of the highest in the, I mean, we, I think we've gone past Germany already, which is crazy. You know, I thought it was nuts when we went past Japan, but now like last year or something, we went past Germany. So we're not poor. We don't need welfare. But so I thought we shouldn't take it at all. But be that as it may, you know, our welfare queens and the general staff, they just can't live without it. And so Obama gave us this offer. He said, I'll raise you the uh, annual aid from $3 billion to $3.8 billion. Uh, but the poison pill is that, you know, it's a, it's a memorandum of understanding that went into force in 2018, and, it's, and it goes for 10 years. So the idea is that um, by, I think, the last five years, we're not allowed to use the money here. All of it is subsidies for American military uh, industries and factories. So we, were, we, as a result, shut down a lot of our domestic production lines because we were buying, we're getting it for free, in quotes, from the United States. So we're talking about discontinuing the Tavor mm -hmm. assault, assault rifles, I think like two years ago, and going back to the M16 or the M4, um, why? You know, we, we took all the trouble to develop the Tavor, and it, they were used, continue, they're good, right? I mean, our special forces are using them, but they were giving our regular, our regular units M4s, 
And then the and then in order to get more bullets, you have to get additional military aid from the United States. So then you had people like um, Ocasio Cortez and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib who are, who hate Jews and want Israel destroyed, saying, "Well, no, you can't give them because the settlers are going to use them, right?" And so then they started saying, "We couldn't buy additional assault rifles. We couldn't buy additional assault bullets because assault rifle bullets because it might go to settlers, you know." And and it's like. Yeah, so they're threatened with annihilation by their Palestinian neighbors. Ah, but no, they're settlers. And then they make up this whole lie about settler violence, which is a total lie. And, you know, and all of a sudden, we don't have assault rifles for our communities. And and then the artillery, and the worst part is, I mean, there are two worst parts. First is that the Air Force is, like, basically just a subsidiary of the of the Pentagon, because not only are all their platforms made in the United States, but all their bombs are made in the United States. All of them? All of them. And we all. cannot produce bombs here? Well, so Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, or is actually Al Zamir, the d- director general of the defense ministry, but same difference, announced with the head of Israel's industrialist union last week, or two weeks ago, I wrote about it at JNS, they declared the Israel independence program, well, you know, morning, right? <laughs> How's the coffee, right? Waking up after 40 years of sleep, Mr. You know, what is it, Rip Van Winkle? You know, like you, you oh, we're going to start producing bombs for the Air Force. Well, great. You know, that was a good idea, right? So I don't know when, but they're going to do that. But also the artillery and tank shells. Right? We stopped producing them. Benny Gantz, when he was defense minister, he's like total Mr. Dependence, right? I mean, he does not believe in independence at all. He would subcontract, you know, IDF uh, command and control to the United States if they asked him to. And he and he closed down all of our protection. Why would he do that? Because he's, he, he doesn't, he, I mean, first of all, I don't think he's very bright. But aside from that, you know, I don't know why. I don't know why any of this is happening. I can't believe this. is. It's <laughs> We a, want answers. It, I, it's just the stupidest thing in the world. Because even if, say the United States, like everybody. Cut the cord. No, say the United States was the most amazing thing ever for Israel. Like that David Friedman was the president, okay. you know. Like, you know, that you just just take the most pro is Tom Cotton was the president. You know, whoever Ted Cruz was president. David right. Friedman is the secretary of state. Barbara Streisand. No, no, she's oh, no good. Okay. But 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 Tom <laughs> Tom Cotton, Tom Cotton was the, the, the defense secretary. I mean, you okay. couldn't have a Ben dream. Shapiro is the. Yeah, he, exactly. Ben Shapiro is the White House chief of staff. Okay. He, nothing better. Like the best. Okay. Right. Yeah. You still wouldn't want to mortgage your national independence to them because you're a sovereign state. You have to have the ability to defend yourself by yourself, whether they like you or not, because also they have to respect you. And how can anybody respect a country, a government that it willingly makes itself dependent on them? You know, it, it, like a parent loves their kid is when they're little, you know, like we love our kids, love like crazy about them but you know a kid who's totally dependent on you it's not you you, you it's may, a turn off no you don't respect them it's not like they haven't reached the point in their life where you're like wow you know because he's a little boy or a little girl you know yeah. and here it's the same thing only with the country right that you're saying oh yeah we're so important to you can we have some more bullets 
I mean, really? Yeah, but not only that, they might. I mean, this Ben Shapiro, Dan, D- Daniel Friedman, David Friedman, and uh, and uh, Dream uh, Dream Administration could be gone the next day. Well, or that's the point. In four years. We did. But, it's gone, right? But what it I'm is wondering gone. is, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about the IDF's uh, responsibility in in what happened on October seventh and what's been happening since. And you know, you can we can put responsibility in a lot of different places, but if someone is responsible for the foreign policy of Israel over the last you know decade, it's it's none other than Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think that what you outlined in you know ninety six to ninety nine, and it seems like he didn't. You you even said he didn't learn his lesson. No, he, he learned a be, lesson, but he didn't learn, he learned the, the, the right. Wrong he lesson, didn't learn the lesson I would have taught him. You know? Not learning the lesson. Um, <laughs> I guess. I mean, you know, if he, you teach he, someone two plus he, two is four, and they're like five, then he they learned learn a the lesson. lesson. He learned a lesson. He learned a lesson. Right. But um, but ultimately, I wonder, and this is this is, I guess, my question is if he hasn't learned his lesson and it's his curse seems to be his non-confrontationalness is there any other option other than getting rid of Bibi? like is yeah does right. bb have to go in order why, to win why is win? Netanyahu still around you want me to tell you why? it's a rhetor- yes. it's a rhetorical question anyway i'll just tell you an answer because you know i i, I try to explain to to my friends on the right uh, you know, we scream, Bibi, I'm so mad. Why did Bibi do this? Bibi I say, I'm sorry, what's the other alternative? Yair Lapid, Naftali Bennett, you know, who are your alternatives? And that's the reason why, that's his secret, because no matter what, he's always been the best. He's like, I'm so mad and frustrated at him, you know? And then all I can do is thank God a hundred times a day that Yair Lapid is not prime minister because that was the other option. Or Benny Gantz. Like, thank God, you know, thank you so much for bringing me this guy who makes me want to tear up my hair in frustration because he's not doing the right thing. But they do all the wrong things. And so he wins just by not doing anything or by doing minimal things or by doing bypasses around the real problems because they Yair Lapid was prime minister for three months and he managed to give Hezbollah its greatest victory over Israel like ever he gave them our 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 territorial waters our economic waters, you know, the promise that everybody assumed, thank God, another miracle, right? There was no natural gas in that platform, but he gave them a platform that we had rights to that, you know, was going to give money to our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And how did you do that? You know, like you you were in office for five minutes and you still managed to do this. That's crazy. Yeah, but I don't think anybody from the right is arguing that Yair Lapid should be prime but minister. But who was the alternative? So I'm saying, is there no alternative you, on the Caroline. right? Because yeah. <laughs> I'm so likable. No, I mean, really, like... Is there you, nobody on the right that's an I'm alternative saying, you to know, Benjamin God willing, there will be. But I'm saying, like, you look at why is it that he's been in office for so long. It's because he's always been the best around, which just shows that, yeah, we have a leadership conflict, you know, crisis. And people say, you know, and and we're always hopeful that the leaders are going, the times will find the man, you know, or the, or some, whatever that, that expression is. I know I mangled it, but I can't remember what the right one is. And, and, and you look at, you look at the situation on the ground today, and I said, you know, we're going to get it right because we don't have any choice. And I feel like, and I believe that, 
because maybe the one thing that drives me the craziest about Netanyahu and lots of things drive me crazy about him and and I support him like I support him 100% when I look at the alternatives but there's so many even things. after October 7th because I could you can you imagine if Yair Lapid were prime minister today can you imagine what October 7th would have looked like if that you know knucklehead was prime minister on October 7th Hezbollah definitely would have invaded also like there's no doubt in my mind and that would have been yeah on the other on the other hand on the other hand yeah the left conquered sinai there's a different left the left (laughs) i don't know the left conquered the golan heights there's a different left right the left conquered the judean samaria yeah and in 1967 um in in 1967 um it, it wasn't until after the Six-Day War that the international left abandoned Israel. Because you have to remember that the biggest thing that happened to Israel in the international arena in our history, more or less, I mean, I guess I could say there were a few, but one of the biggest ones. And this was what the Israeli left never understood. McDonald's came here. Oh, no, but it didn't do that. It, it, yeah. it looked like that was going to be the biggest thing, but then it sort of was a dud and nobody really yeah. cared after a while. It was, it was like it was like Starbucks, you know, they came and it was like, everybody was like Starbucks, and they're like, this coffee is terrible. You know, this is really gross. I can't believe I just spent 25 shekels for it. It's like the worst coffee ever. Like, I have acid reflux after I take one sip, you know, yuck. So okay. no, that, that didn't so work, and, and McDonald's wasn't that big of a deal. It was that Russia, the Soviet Union, cut off diplomatic ties with Israel after the Six-Day War because, you know, we had been the darlings of the international left when we were established because, and it wasn't just because we were socialists, because the socialists liked us. And then the Soviet Union decided that they wanted to cut us off. Later, they 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 were upset about it. They made a mistake because they lost all their listening posts and stuff like that. But um, they they cut off relations with Israel in, in 1967. And then slowly we saw the international left also abandon us. I mean, we were the darlings of Hollywood in the 1960s and 50s. And then suddenly we weren't anymore. And we thought, and, and the left here never understood that it had nothing really to do with us. It was about power politics between the, between the world powers and the Cold War. But... Uh, so they were blaming themselves that the left left them. But the left, like in the United States, there was a split in the Communist Party. I, I, I researched this many years ago, and it just, my mind was blown that all of these Jewish communists who were Zionists, because all the communists were Zionists, they ended up being booted out of the Communist Party in the United States because they didn't want to abandon their support for Israel. And that was when you started getting a lot of Jewish anti Zionist people like in the in in the 1970s because they remained communist because the communists had gone anti-Israel and then the Europeans went anti-Israel and after this after the Yom Kippur War and well they had started before that because the the French pull out of Algeria but anyway so you look at the situation and and you see that the international left changed the new left which was progressive replace the old left, which were socialists and workers' rights. Nobody cares about workers' rights on the left anymore at all. They don't know what work is, so they certainly don't know what, you know, unions are. And um, and so they, the when you look at the way that the left has been transformed into cultural Marxism, 
And the, the, the Israeli left got very confused by this. They thought we had done something wrong, and that was when they sort of, and then they lost in 77. So led by Shimon Peres, they sort of became part of this peace lobby, thinking that would bring the French back, that would bring the Soviets back, at least some people thought that. I'm not sure if Paris did, but they, definitely the Europeans would come back and the American left would come back. But he didn't, they didn't. And then instead of abandoning the left that had turned against us, our left, particularly our elites, became increasingly post-Zionist. So what happened on October 11th, if you look at like the the survivors from Beiri and from Kfar Asa, what did I say? 11th. Sorry, <laughs> I was thinking September 11th. Again. Yeah. October 7th, you see all the kibbutznikim who were progressives and 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 post-Zionist on they October 6th, Gaza. they suddenly have reattached to their Zionist and more socialist ethos that they had in the past, but our elite have not. So you listen to the people in Berry talk, you listen to the, who are very far to the left, very, very far to the left, and you listen to the people in uh, from Kfar Aza and Yeroz and all of them, they don't sound anything like... Um, you know, uh, the media. They don't yeah. sound... But they'll still vote for Gantz, Lapid. And, well, they uh, might vote for Gantz, but you never know because we really, that's the other thing is that people don't know what's going to happen. How will it, it end? We don't know who's going to run. Yeah, also true. But also we don't know how it's going to end. We don't I mean, know how it's going to end. Here I have end. to ask you about it because, again, coming back to the beginning, how do you see the, the state of the war right now? Where is it heading? And what is victory? And is it possible? So victory is changing the way things are done. You know, victory means not believing that there are diplomatic solutions to military problems, but actually solving military problems through military means. And so when they talk about like, destroying Hamas, so that means destroying the Dawah, uh, Hamas's welfare, Islamic welfare uh, chains, closing down all of the NGO networks that fund Hamas. It means seizing control of uh, of um, welfare, of whether it's humanitarian assistance or anything else, um, from the Palestinians, from the UN, which is just Hamas, and being responsible for it ourselves. And then militarily, it means um, taking complete control over Gaza and build, rebuilding our bases there, or seizing the bases that. You know that that were built after we left for Hamas for, for the Palestinian Authority, whatever, and um, and controlling Gaza and remaining in place, not leaving. And and as far as civil affairs concerned, but then I, soldiers I will die every day. Well, yeah, but they'll be defending the country. I mean, maybe like I'm sorry, um, what just happened on October seventh? I I mean. Like, what do you want? What's the alternative? Like, you look at it, it's like you can say, you know, this was our doctrine. Our doctrine was we leave, we close the door behind us, maybe lock it with a big fence that mm-hmm. costs three billion shekels that's really, really super de duper you know, high tech and really smart. And then we can bury our heads in the sand and say, we can't see you, we can't see you, and they can't see us either, and they don't care anymore. But it works out that when we close the door, they're looking through it and saying, but we still want to kill you. 
we wanted to kill you when you were here. We wanted to kill you after you left. Yeah, and they want to kill us when we control them. So No, because we'll be in control. I mean, a lot fewer Israelis died from terrorism when we were in control of Judea and Samaria and Gaza than after we formed the Palestinian Authority. But still Authority. people die in Judea and Samaria almost today. Yeah, but 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 we're much you're not safer. safe in you live we're in Judea and Samaria. Much not more, we're much safer in Judea and Samaria than the people uh, were in uh, in in the kibbutzim next but, to Gaza. But you're you're arguing for uh, uh, Israeli military presence, but still a Palestinian uh, uh, population. I don't know what's going to be. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who, how many people are going to want to stay. I don't think it's very inhabitable. But right now, in the northern part of the there Strip... There are still 150,000 people there. Which is a tenth of what there were previously. Right, so... So why not just lock down the border because and say nobody's back? Because there are still a million of them in the In south. the southern part. So I'm saying, but at but least the northern that, part right, we but can... We're, but we haven't controlled the northern. I mean, that's the other lie that we keep being told, that we've controlled northern Gaza, and we haven't. I mean, you know, we just... They, they still control underground. We still haven't routed them, and not only that, like uh, the the Institute for the Study of War, I think it was in in Washington, they just put out this assessment, and it's correct. They said, given the force structure of Hamas terror cells, it, by 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 bringing down the number of forces that we have in northern Gaza, we've given them the ability to reconstitute. So it's not. You, you right now we're in the middle of a war, in the height of a war. The, we're at the beginning of a very long war. This is not a war that's going to be six days. It's not a war that's going to be six months. You know, we'll be lucky if this war is six years. And so it sounds to me like First Lebanon we, War. No, the First like Lebanon the, War we won very quickly, and then we just sort of devolved from there under American but pressure. But what what I'm wondering is why not state as a as an explicit goal of the war to conquer and uh, uh, the Gaza Strip and have as little Gazans, uh, Palestinians there as possible. I don't know. I think it's probably because of. Uh, it should, but I it's think, just not. I think that I think that the concept is to be as as uh, amorphous as possible, so that you can uh, you can get as much buy-in from the United States as you possibly can. And but strategically, the more, do you think that that is the right... I don't see any other aim? way. I mean, I also okay. think that we should open up the border for them to leave. I think that they should be allowed to leave. I don't understand the whole concept of not allowing people to leave a war zone. You know, they should yeah, be allowed to leave. Yeah, but that's in service leave. of the strategy of getting rid of as many of them as possible Well, out of the nothing, strip. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? No, no, that's what I'm saying. That that, that yeah, but I'm saying that right now it it's a cra- it it's a it's a statement. It's an expression of the incredible hostility that the United States and you know Europe, of course, but I mean that specifically the United States under the Biden administration harbors towards Israel that they're blocking the escape of the Gazans uh, through through the Rafa mm-hmm. uh, crossing. To me, that it's just shocking because what they're saying is no. You're stuck with these people who actually participated in the genocide of the Jews on October 7th. And who do not no longer want to be there. And who don't want to be there (laughs) and who would love to leave. And they want to preserve the problem. It's amazing. Before we wrap things up, because we're we're right around time, I I, I do feel like we missed uh, an opportunity to talk about the the Northern Front. And I want to maybe, because... 
you know, the conventional wisdom today in Israel is you can't have two fronts on this war. We can't be busy in the north while we're tr still trying to deal with the problem on the south. But in the meantime, civilians and soldiers are being killed um, all the time. And the just now in the north and just now, as we mentioned, strategic, highly strategic uh, targets in the north on the Israeli side are being targeted by Hezbollah and, uh, and destroyed or at least severely damaged. So what, what what do you think is the right course of action there? I'll be brief. Um, right now, um, the status quo uh, is only serving Hezbollah's aims. The, the, the side that needs the situation to fundamentally change in order to be safe is Israel. And that we have 60,000 people more than that mm -hmm. and and uh, that are internal Displaced. refugees mm -hmm. and they cannot go back to their home so long as the status quo obtains Hezbollah has to be downgraded mis militarily there's no other way that um, the residents of Kiryat Shmona and really the residents of of Nariya, the residents of, of Shlomi, the, the residents of Haifa can't feel safe in their homes uh, at all. And so you, you look at the situation when the Americans say that they want to avoid uh, another front in Lebanon, what they're saying is that they want to eternalize the, the fact that the northern communities cannot return home, the depopulation of northern Israel. And that's an unacceptable, that's, a, that's an absolutely unacceptable scenario from an Israeli perspective. So right now, Hezbollah, by quote unquote, not going into a high intensity conflict with Israel, has depopulated northern Israel, has um, maintained its control of uh, Lebanon uh, down to the border with Israel, including the border with Israel. They've taken strategic uh, action against Israel's most critical military infrastructure on Mount Meron. They targeted another piece of critical military infrastructure, apparently on Har Meron, on Mount Meron, on Mount uh, Hermon this, today. Um, so we're looking at an existential threat to Israel because Hezbollah poses an existential threat to us physically with its military, with its missile arsenals, and with its commando forces. Um, and they're not being downgraded. So this is not, a, you know, and then the Americans come in and say, well, we prefer a diplomatic solution. Well, you can't have a diplomatic solution to this military problem. You can only have a military solution to it. And so, um, and anything else uh, imperils this country like we've never been endangered before. And so it's true that, you know, we face a difficult situation having these two fronts. But, you know, a friend of mine who's um, serving in, in, one of the, uh, in one of the reserve units, he made a point to me yesterday, which I, I still have to think about how compelling it is. On the face of it, it seems very compelling to me, and I have to, I, but I'm just going to toss it out. Um, and, and I'm not saying that this I, that I'm completely on board because I just haven't had enough time to think about it. He said, look, Carolyn, the problem is that we keep thinking that we have to have everything precise, that it, the targeting has to be precise. 
And that's not true because we're only helping the other side by doing this because you're dealing with a society that's at war with us and we're not actually deterring anybody and we're also not defeating anybody. He said, we actually have to cause massive physical destruction in these areas in order, in whatever front we're dealing with in order to to convince our enemies that they're defeated and to show the world that we've defeated them because that's what the conflict is about, is proving to everybody. Some, I heard somebody say that just as, you know, in 1947, you could go to Timbuktu or the North Pole and ask, did Germany win or did America win? And everybody would know, you know, to like the Brazilian rainforest, everybody would know that America had won and that Germany had lost. And that's the kind of convincing victory that Israel needs to win in this war if we don't want to see a repeat of October 7th. And so he said, when we're, when we're challenged in, in a significant way, then the army is going to be forced, the army meaning the general staff, is going to be forced to give up this precision-guided doctrine and just be willing to destroy the enemy. And that's what has to happen in order for us to win. So his argument to me, and again, it, like, it seems compelling, but I'm, I'm not totally convinced it's correct, but it seems compelling because I don't exactly know what we have, and I have to think about that too, you know, that, that we just have to accept the way things are and fight with what we have, with the goal, the explicit goal, of defeating our enemies in that sort of compelling way that you know the the people the in in the brazilian rainforests and i don't know on top of uh, mount kilimanjaro everybody knows that the jews won this war uh, unconditional surrender i feel yes. like that's not something we, we we seem to put it beyond us to bring hamas to their knees meaning the best we can do is to wipe them off the place of the but we should make it so Painstakingly, like we should make it so, so like so, so fearful for them that, we that they should get to their knees we and say, "Please to. stop." We have to. I mean, that's the that's thing. what we did to the Germans. That's yes. what we did to the Japanese. That's what. But I mean, again, we have to get it through our heads. This isn't what Khalifa said. This isn't a war of, of of you know about a quality of life. This is a war about life. This is a life and death struggle against forces of death who want to extinguish Jewish life here. And we can't, not only can we not let them win, we have to beat them. And, and that means what it sounds like it means. It means truly defeating them. It doesn't mean trying to get to a diplomatic solution or rebuilding the two-state solution. It means we have to defeat them so badly that they will cry uncle, that they will beg us to stop, and we will only stop when we see that their begging is genuine. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we faced on October 7th. The state of Israel disappeared for, you know, 24 hours or 18 hours or whatever it was, and immediately we got Auschwitz. Immediately. I mean, it's incredible. State of Israel is gone for five seconds and they are doing what they did in the South, the almost unimaginable. And they did it because we weren't, because the state disappeared. What does that tell us about the importance of our state? It means all of our lives are contingent on it always being there. 
And we never thought it wouldn't be there. But now we know what happens when it isn't. And, and it just cannot be allowed to disappear ever again. And everybody who, does, who fails to understand this, and I fear that the general staff does not understand it because they don't want to reconcile with the fact that they disappeared that day. And so, you know, they did. They weren't there. And they have to understand that what that means is that they have to be there in a way that they never imagined they'd have to be there. We need them to be there in a way that they never imagined because they always thought that there had to be a diplomatic solution and it wasn't up to them that they were really diplomats. They're not. They're warriors. And if they can't do it, if they can't fight to win, they have got to leave because that's the fight we're in today. We're not in a diplomatic problem. We don't have a diplomatic problem with Hamas. And frankly, we don't have a diplomatic problem with the Palestinian Authority. We certainly don't have a diplomatic problem with Hezbollah or with Iran. We have military problems with them because they want to annihilate us. And they will if we don't stop them. Amen. Amen, <laughs> Amen sister. Oh, yeah, you tell like it is, Carolyn. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thank you so much, thank Carolyn, you. for joining really us. We appreciate it. Thanks All for coming to our new studio. Yeah, it's Hope gorgeous. Like it. Why do thank I you like so much. it? Guys, check out the Carolyn Glick Show. Yeah. It's yeah. very highly recommended. And you're on Twitter, right? Uh, I'm on Carolyn Glick Twitter handle, and I'm yep. always nasty in two in two languages. You can't not be nasty on Twitter. It's well, like, it's like terms of uh, agreement. It works out that I'm yeah. good at that. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew I had it in me? I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> we really appreciate. <laughs> All right, you take coming. care, guys. Thank you. Good luck with this beautiful new studio. Thank you so Thank much. You so much. Bye, guys. See you in the Bye. next one.